Greetings and welcome to the Five By, your fast, friendly, and frenetic board game podcast. This episode, we have five games old and new, and old made new. First up, Meeple Lady takes part in the festivities of Field of the Cloth of Gold. Next, Rel can't seem to remember where he put it down, so he's on the search for Planet X. Then, I race past with my thoughts on Downforce. Mason bets his review of Longshot the Dice Game will get your interest. And last but certainly not least, Ruth tells us all the buzz about bees. And here's Meeple Lady. The Field of the Cloth of Gold designer Amabel Russell provides this charming description about the game. The game is created to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the world's most famous three-week party, in which King Henry VIII of England and Francis I of France spent ridiculous amounts of money and resources to peacock at each other. A three-week party? I'm so in. The Field of the Cloth of Gold, published by Hollenspiel, is a two-player game that plays in about 20 minutes. One player is the King of England, and the other the King of France, and players work to amass a hand of tiles so they can play those tiles into their court, and score them when taking actions. Tiles come in four colors, gold, blue, white, and red. Your hand is kept secret from your rival while your court is in public view. Tiles that aren't in your hand or in your court or on the board are kept in a container of your choice so you can randomly draw them when needed. This place is called the darkness. And yes, that's what the rulebook calls it. Every time I read the darkness, I imagine Mason's voice from the game in episode 91. It's very funny. It's also worth noting that the Field of the Cloth of Gold's rulebook is a mere four pages, making the game easy to learn and jump into. There are seven locations on the cloth board, which is a very nice bonus to the game, I might add. And players have two tokens each that they can choose from to move to an open location for their one action on their turn. The game can seem like your standard worker placement point salad, but for each action you take, your rival is presented with a gift to be placed in their court. The tile that's randomly drawn and placed at that action location. This very thing creates unbelievably high tension between you and your opponent. A strategic dance to avoid giving your opponent the tile they need, which often sits on the action you truly want to take. It's an absurd gift-giving mechanism that forces you to hand over a gift while you smell through gritted teeth. It's so freaking agonizing. There are seven action locations on the board. The first spot is Dragon, where you move the Dragon token so that the Dragon blocks a location from being activated. The second spot is Secrecy, where you can gain tiles from the Darkness. The number of tiles depends on where you're sitting on the score track. The third spot is gold, where you reveal gold tiles from your hand and place them into your court. If you have more gold tiles than your rival, you score two points. The fourth spot is blue, where you reveal blue tiles from your hand and place them into your court. If you have one, two, or three plus tiles, you score one, three, or six points. The blue tiles in your court are then removed from the game. The fifth spot is white, where you reveal white tiles from your hand and place them into your court. You score one point per white tile in your court, and the white tiles in your court are then removed from the game. The sixth spot is red, where the active player reveals red tiles from their hand and places them into their court. Both players receive one point for each red tile in their court, and then the red cards are discarded from the game. Note that the rival player does not get a chance to place red tiles into their court during this action. The seventh spot is purple, where you reveal all tiles from your hand and place it into your court. You score two points for each set in your court, and a set is a collection of four tiles, one of each of the colors. During gameplay, the active player moves one of their tokens to an open location, presents their rival with a tile gift, and then scores based on the location. During my games, the recipient always feigns surprise and says, A gift? For me? Much to the active player's dismay. 
This back and forth continues until one person hits 30 points or there are no more tiles in the darkness. Also, as one moves up the score track, they draw more tiles during secrecy, ramping up the game. But as you move up the score track, your gold tiles are worth less at the end. These points from your gold tiles are added to your score on the score track and the player with the most points wins the game. The field of the cloth of gold is incredibly tense, but also very fun. Gameplay is quick and the game is over before you know it. A simple decision opens up opportunities for your rival and you try your best to mitigate them. I know I spent my game staring daggers at my opponent, hoping he'll vacate the spot I need to score more points, but then again, I also left one token on the location he wanted to go to. And when in doubt, you can always send out the dragon to wreak some havoc. And that's the field of the Cloth of Gold. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Soon enough, maybe we all can have that three-week party. Thanks for listening. Bye. In January of 2016, two astronomers published a paper detailing their Planet 9 hypothesis. They used a computer model to show that a distant planet could explain the unique orbits of observable objects in the solar system. Based on this real-life hypothesis, you play the role of an astronomer observing the sky, submitting theories, and deducing the location of Planet X. Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at The Search for Planet X, a game by Matthew O'Malley and Ben Rosette, with art by James Messino and Michael Pedro. The Search for Planet X was published in 2020 by Renegade Game Studios, who sent me a review copy. The Search for Planet X is a hybrid analog and digital game. The physical board and components track time in theories, and shows the current player's observable sectors, while the companion app offers players the information they need to locate Planet X. The solar system is a large circle divided into 12 sectors, 18 in the advanced game. Each sector contains one object, or it can be empty. As players move their tokens, they'll reveal different sectors for observation. On your turn, you'll perform an action to either gain information or to guess where Planet X is. When gathering information, you'll interact with the app, entering the object you're looking for, comet, asteroid, dwarf planet, gas cloud, or an empty sector, and a range of sectors. The app will then give you, and only you, a clue based on what you entered. Each player has a sheet where you'll write down your clues. At various spots on the board, players may submit a theory face down on the object they believe is in a sector. During each theory phase, the theories move towards the center. When it's reached the inner ring, a theory is peer-reviewed by the app. If it's correct, then it'll be revealed to everyone. When you've deduced the location of Planet X, you'll enter its sector location and the objects, if any, in the adjacent sectors. The first player to find Planet X triggers the endgame. Points are awarded to those who submitted correct theories and or found Planet X. The most points wins. If I had to pick a board game genre as my least favorite, it would definitely be deduction. For whatever reason, my brain just doesn't work this way. Give me dice and I could give you a rough estimate of how likely I'll roll a certain result. Or let me shuffle a deck of cards and I'll give you the odds of a certain suit being drawn. Put me in the middle of a deduction game though and instantly I morph into Inspector Clouseau, stumbling and bumbling around trying to figure out what the heck is going on. I'm not as successful as a good inspector though and typically don't find out who done it. But I can't get enough of the search for Planet X. The theme drew me in since it's based on a real life theory put forth by astronomers. With its simple one action turn structure, the blend of physical game components and digital companion app makes for a delightful deduction experience. The board is a beautiful representation of the night sky with the sun in the middle. 
while the app is an easy way to give each player information during their turn. It's this smooth integration of the app that I enjoy the most. A player announces what they're searching for, such as survey asteroids in sectors 1 to 5, then the app provides information for their eyes only. There are player shields to keep prying eyes away from your note taking, and these double as player aids with everything you need to know about the game right in front of you. Maybe it's the old college nerd in me, but I love the note taking aspect in the search for Planet X. It makes me feel like a real scientist writing down my observations and anything I've learned from my fellow astronomers. In fact, I love how thematic the game is. When a theory is submitted, it'll eventually be peer-reviewed, and if it's correct, then we all learn something about a sector. Of course, being the first to submit the correct theory gets you an extra point. You score points for finding Planet X first, but it's not a guarantee of victory. You score points for submitting correct theories, and even after someone has found Planet X, each remaining player has a chance to submit another theory or try to find Planet X as well. Full disclosure, I have not won a single game of The Search for Planet X. I've come close a few times, but have never been the first player to find the hidden planet. And yet, I'm still highly recommending this game. I know my limitations as a gamer, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy something I'm so bad at. Thankfully, there's a solo game where I can take my time and hone my sleuthing skills without the pressure of other players. As we continue to stay safe by wearing masks, washing our hands, and practicing physical distancing, the Search for Planet X makes for an excellent solo experience. The app handles the bot's turn, making it easy to focus on the game and not some clunky AI. There are several setup configurations and game modes to challenge all levels of players. I'm still a beginner, but that doesn't stop me from constantly searching for Planet X. Maybe one day I'll graduate to experienced mode. Thanks to Renegade Studios for the review copy of The Search for Planet X. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Let's just make one thing clear. People are weird, and nostalgia is one heck of a drug. And as board gamers are definitely a subset of people, well, here we are. In a space where everybody is both clamoring for the newest, latest, and greatest, which comes nonstop these days, and clamoring for nostalgia of the games they played as kids, I suppose a game company like Restoration Games was inevitable. And I don't mean that as a knock against them, they do top-notch work, well above and beyond slapping a new coat of varnish on old games before sending them out the door. So let's take a look at one. Well, maybe another one, as I did look at Stop Thief back in episode 21. But for Downforce, the same fundamental question applies. Will I enjoy a nostalgic game that I have no nostalgia for? Because until they remake Payday or Space Hop, I kinda got nothing. Downforce is apparently a re-release of 1996's Top Race by venerable designer Wolfgang Kramer. I'm frankly a bit surprised that a Kramer title was allowed to languish. 1996 is two years after Six Nymphed and a year after El Grande. We're talking prime design time here. And while I've never played Top Race, after reading the rules it looks like little has changed in base downforce other than its defaults to the advanced rules. But I'm sure Rob Davio and Justin Jacobson earned their co-designer credits by tightening up the game in a few places. In the game, each player is dealt a hand of cards, which have movement distances on them for different cars. That's right, each card you play will not only move your car, but will move others as well. Cards are then used to build on different cars and power combinations that are revealed one at a time. Generally speaking, you'll want to build on cars that you have good cards for, as you start the game with all the cards you'll ever have. But if you don't get the cars you want, it's not the end of the world, because you can still bet on cars to win and push them forward with your car play. It's kind of up to you, because each turn you look at the current race situation and determine which card you want to play. You may not want to play your best card, because maybe you see how your car will be blocked before it finishes its turn, or will be blocked based on how your card moves the other cars. 
You also have the special power you bid on earlier. This is why you may bid on cards you don't really want, just to get that power to do things like move extra spaces, move cards in different order, or use the wild movement to move your card twice. We have found powers like Determined to be very powerful. Maybe too powerful? But after only 6 plays, I'm not quite ready to ban it yet. Especially as we haven't had the opportunity to play it with 5 or 6 players yet. Thanks, COVID. Anyway, back to the race. You keep moving your cars and everyone else's cars along the racetrack toward the finish line. Except at 3 marked points on the board where everything pauses for everyone to place their bets. Don't worry, these are free bets on who you think will win the race, and if that car finishes 1 through 3rd, then you get free money at the end of the game. You also get money at the end for what position your car comes in. Now, ideally you'd win the race and a bet on your car the whole way. But in reality, life doesn't really work that way. That's why you're never really out of a game of downforce. Don't think your car will win? Then bet on someone else. Most likely they'll hedge their bets a little too, leading to a close money race in the end. You also have to subtract the costs of all the cars that you own at the end of the game, which can be a big chunk of money if you're overzealous on what you bid at the start of the game. I've won multiple games where my car didn't win. And that's downforce, more or less in a nutshell. So what did I think? Well, I think it's fairly straightforward. Even if it's the advanced rules of Top Race, my family didn't have any issues with the technical side of it. I like that it's a fairly quick game. I've never timed it, but the 20 to 40 minutes listed playtime on the box sounds about right to me. Often we played two back-to-back -back games, and I like the tactical strategy of how I'm going to move each car and which car I'll bet on right now. No fiddling with money or windshield place, it's a simple mechanism. The whole thing is a straightforward mechanism that provides more depth of play than I was expecting. And speaking earlier of slapping a new coat of varnish on, Travis Coburn, Michael Crampton, and Jason Taylor's artwork on the game is functional and clean. Although I wonder if there's some color blindness issues as I don't see any symbols along with the car colors on the cars or cards. So why did I wait so long to pick up Downforce? Well, it mostly comes down to a lack of nostalgia for me. I found that games that trade heavily on nostalgia are pretty hit or miss for me as I just don't have an abundance of goodwill going into the game. Not that this is a bad thing, just I tried more carefully. As I mentioned in Snowtails, I've been looking for a fun race game that gives you the feeling of racing without the unnecessary complications of a full-on simulation. I don't need to be shifting gears or throwing on the brakes. Downforce is definitely not a simulation as every player has a say over how well or poorly your car is going to do. They often can't help but push you along, but they will do it in the least efficient way possible. And the betting makes you feel more like a spectator, or maybe an owner of the race car itself. Whatever. The point is, we like it. So much so that I ordered the second expansion board for it, although mostly for the power cards. And that's Downforce. If you'd like to discuss the game further or anything else, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Longshot, the dice game. In the four years the 5 Buy has been on the air, I've made it a policy not to talk about games that you can't get. I personally have only done it once before, Pulp Detective, way back in episode 27, but I'd already been a big fan of the print-and-play version, so that doesn't really count. So why am I here to talk about a game that isn't currently available that's on Kickstarter right now? Because it was a hell of a lot of fun, and I love horse racing games. I got a third-hand preview copy of Longshot, the dice game, from my close friend Eric Buscemi, who's an actual board game writer and critic, as opposed to me, a person who talks about board games occasionally on a podcast. He and my other friend Patrick had a very nice chat about it, which I'll link to in the show notes. So, what is it? Longshot, the dice game, is a horse racing game, which I just love. I'd had designer Chris Handy's original 2009 horse game, Longshot, on my want list for years, but it is out of print and obscenely expensive. While that certainly hasn't stopped me tracking down a game before, as you well know, we're a two-player household, 
and most horse racing games, the original long shot included, don't really play very well or at all at two. I checked the shelves, and including long shot dice, I own six different horse racing games. Across the Board, 1975, Win Place and Show, 1966, Giro Galopo, 2006, Jockey, 1973, and Kinesia's Winner's Circle, 2001. Please note that these are just the horse racing games. This is non-inclusive of any other kinds of animal racing games we own. Donkeys, pigs, and worms, just off the top of my head. The thing is, though, that I don't really care for horse racing. I just like horse racing games. I see you all out there calling Long Shot Dice a roll-and-write game. While I do concede that there are dice and that you do write on a board, this has much more in common with classic 3M crayon or pencil games than it does with roll and writes. Quix and Quinto, the latter of which I covered back in episode 63, are roll and write games. You roll dice, look at the result, and write it on your sheet. I know that people throw the term roll and write around pretty loosely these days, but for me, once you get beyond the dice, the sheet, and the pencil, you're into some other kind of territory that ceases to be a roll and write. Obviously, most of you probably disagree with this. Feel free to at me and tell me I'm wrong. I'd be happy to argue with you about this on the internet. Now, Long Shot Dice isn't really even a dice game. It's really more like Long Shot Express, and it turns out to be pretty much everything I've been looking for in a horse racing game. You start the race with eight wooden horses. The preview copy I played looks, to me at least, to be a production quality copy, so I assume if this is the minimum that the retail versions will be, you're going to be very happy with the quality here. So there's wooden horses on a small board in the middle of the table. You each have a provided marker and a dry erase player board, and the cards with the horses' names on them are off to the side. When the race starts, no one owns any horses, but you can buy them later if you want. You roll the dice, and you move the horse of the corresponding color two spaces. Check that horse's card, and then move any of the other horses marked on the horse that you moved's card one space. Now, this doesn't exactly make any thematic sense, but it is a pretty slick way to handle advancing the race without having lookup tables like some classic racing games do. I'll grant that there is a touch of roll and write in using the horse color to choose your action, but just barely. So after all the horses advance, you can mark off part of the grid in your board of bonuses, make a bet, or buy a horse. You can also give yourself a couple of advantages on the horse that just moved, thematically represented by a jockey's helmet in a jersey, but without really any real-world analog, but whatever. It's a game design thing that makes it more fun and interesting. This isn't a horse racing simulator. Chill out, Mason. Betting is interesting here, as everyone starts with the same money, and you only run one race. So it's a gambling game, but there's no way to buy the pot or bully other players with your previous winnings. The odds for horses are tailored to how fast they are, which Chris Handy is neatly dealt with by the number of times fast horses appear on other horses' cards. At the end of the race, the only thing that matters is how much money you have. There are enough ways to win that one probably won't be dominant, and the output randomness is interesting enough and has enough levers you can choose to pull to keep the races from turning out the same every single time. Longshot Dice played great at 2, and we both enjoyed it. I'm not sure I'd want to play it at 8, which you can, but I'd be interested to try it at least once. At a player count that high, I'm pretty sure everyone couldn't see the cards on the table, which is a huge issue for me. But maybe if it ends up on Board Game Arena or something where everyone has the same view, it could be interesting at that player count. There's a solo game rule set that I didn't try, so I don't really have an opinion on that. My one hesitation in recommending Long Shot Dice might be the price point, at least during the crowdfunding campaign. Long Shot Dice is $25 plus $9 shipping. And if we're really nickel and diming, and you know me, when am I not, that is maybe a bit rich for my blood. I'd probably have preferred to save a few bucks and have a less fancy box, pencils instead of markers, or nothing, I can provide my own pencils, I have them in my house, and a paper pad instead of the dry erase boards. Anyway, who should play long shot dice? People who really like racing games. 
People who don't mind a little bit of rules explanation before they start and are capable of wrapping their head around something that's not quite a simulation, but more than not a simulation. People who like pencil games. And people who are right-handed because of the little markers often smear for lefties. I give Longshot Dice 8 out of 8 horses with believably silly names, but not annoyingly silly names. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost and on Board Game Geek and Board Game Arena as Breakfast Core. Wear a mask, wash your hands, and get vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here, talking about a game that was actually purchased for me by non-gaming family. And quite frankly, they did good. Plan B Games' Next Move imprint specializes in beautiful abstract games with four-letter titles, like the Azul series, Reef, and their latest release, Bees, which also happens to be the game I was given. Bees, spelled with a Z, was designed by Dan Halstead, illustrated by Chris Quilliams, and produced by Sophie Gravel. Published in 2020, the game puts two to four players to work collecting nectar from a field of flowers in an attempt to produce the most honey drops, or points. Playing in just 30 to 45 minutes, Bees offers up some thinky, interesting decision-making as players attempt to most efficiently gather that precious nectar. Players will set up the flower field using individual tiles comprised of hexagonal spaces. These are laid out semi-randomly around a central starting tile, so the floral playing field will look a bit different each game. They'll then take their individual hive boards, take a look at the public scoring objectives for the game, choose two private scoring objectives to keep from a hand of three, and then place their bees ready to begin. The player turns in bees are comprised of three steps, planning your flight, moving your bee, and then collecting and storing nectar if possible. The initial planning phase could have the potential to be the trickiest part of the game to pick up, but excellent component design has all but eliminated this. You see, your bee cannot move in the direction it was left facing at the end of your previous turn, and the amount you choose to rotate your bee determines how far you get to move. Turn one face in either direction, and you can move exactly one or five spaces. Turn 120 degrees, and you can go two or four. Turn 180 while you're looking at an exactly three hex move. To make this easy to remember, the player pieces are sculpted bees atop hexagonal bases, and printed on the edges of those bases are the number of spaces you can legally move in their direction, which lets you immediately assess your options. Once you've planned your turn and rotated your bee, you'll then move an allowed number of spaces to land on an empty hex. There's no stacking up on other bees or crossing non-board areas allowed. Then the final step of your turn takes place. If you're next to a small nectar drop, you can take it and place it into one of the spaces of your hive that's marked with a number corresponding to the length of flight you took. If you land in the center of a flower with a large nectar drop, well, you get both it and one of the small drops surrounding it. Bees continues until one player has collected 12 nectar, at which point players finish the round and then score honey drops for the public and private scoring objectives. And of course, the player with the most honey will be the winner. Each step is fairly simple, but it all comes together beautifully as players try to find the best path to what they need and consider whether to give up collecting nectar on one turn in order to set up a better move for the next one. There are also leaf tiles sprinkled amongst the flower tiles which don't have nectar, but do have water droplets on some of their spaces. Land on a water droplet and you can immediately make another flight with your newly refreshed bee. 
letting you reach flowers further away from your starting position. The route planning provides an enjoyable puzzle, and as nectar is never replenished, there's a racing element as players try to reach certain colors first to meet scoring objectives. Added to this is the fact that scoring objectives mostly relate to which locations of your hive are filled with nectar. Since you can only place nectar on spaces matching the length of flight taken to reach it, you'll have to carefully plan how to get to your goals. After all, there's no point taking small one-hex hops if you You've already filled the five hive spaces marked with a one, so you're gonna have to vary it up a bit. Speaking of varying things up, bees also allows you to mix things up in a couple of ways from play to play. The rules include alternate options for arranging the tiles, resulting in different flower fields to explore, and there's also an expert variant, the most interesting aspect of which being that it requires all nectar to be placed in hive spaces adjacent to nectar already placed. I've played the game this way, and it definitely adds some extra considerations to every move, so perhaps save it for those players who've already played instead of jumping straight to it. As is typical of Next Move, Bees is beautifully produced. The already mentioned sculpted player tokens are lovely and substantial to move, and they look great amongst the colorful, beautifully illustrated flower tiles, which are themselves nice and thick enough to last a lot of plays. The player hive boards are triple layered, so that regardless of whether you place a small or large piece of nectar in a space, it will remain securely centered on its location. The art is charming, the pieces are great, and the insert is so well designed that when I turned the box upside down to check some info while writing this, not a thing was left out of place on opening the game, which almost seems like magic. Especially right now, my gaming time is very limited. A two-player game of bees takes us about 30 minutes, including setup. It lets us get in a really fun, challenging enough to be interesting without leaving a brain dead game, in between other tasks, or in the time I have between long work days and the need for sleep. I cannot wait to introduce others to the game and try it out with more people, but I feel confident saying that if you like puzzly, beautifully well-produced, and easy-to-pick-up games, then bees is well worth trying out. Give it a go and let me know what you think. You can find me on Twitter at Ruth, that's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the 5 by Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or check out our website, 5bygames.com. If you like what you hear on the 5 by and want to support our work, visit patreon.com slash 5 by games. Thank you.